many people uh, have been led to believe that goldfish have only a three-second memory. What that means, apparently, is that after three seconds, goldfish have forgotten whatever it was that they learnt or seen or had heard within the last three seconds. Uh, This belief has given rise to various jokes, such as, what does a goldfish think about all day? Answer, hey, that's a nice rock. Hey, that's a nice rock. Hey, that's a nice rock. Recently, however, I was uh, reading the back page of a New Scientist magazine, a forum where such heavy questions get discussed, and a number of people had written to debunk this urban myth. Goldfish have very good memories. Goldfish owners know this from various things that happen. For example, uh, one person wrote in to say that should a heron visit his fish pond, something that only happens very occasionally, the goldfish change their feeding behavior. And instead of coming to the surface of the pond to eat their fish food, they wait for it to sink down to the bottom of the pond, which is where they are hiding at the bottom. And it takes apparently at least two weeks for this behavior to change back. Clearly, they remember the trauma of a heron visit for longer than just three seconds. Nevertheless, as today's biblical text will show us, whilst it's not true that goldfish only have three-second memories, it is unfortunately true for most human beings. Oh no, we're all going to die. Oh no, we're all going to die. Oh no, we're all going to die. Let's, let's take a look at it together. We're, 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 we're moving our way through the book of Exodus, and we're up to chapter 16. And if you'd like to follow along, in your pew Bible, we're on page 57, Exodus chapter 16, beginning at the first verse. Page 57 of the pew Bible. The whole, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt! There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Well, um, last week we read together of uh, Israel's first test in the desert, a test that they failed. Uh, They had run out of water and they came to a place with water, but it turned out to be saline. So they grumbled against Moses complaining to him because clearly it was his fault, not. And Moses prayed, and the Lord showed Moses a tree. And Moses threw the tree into the water, and the bitter water became sweet. 
And last week we talked about what that meant, that a tree might make bitter water sweet, a tree which might heal that which was bitterness. And we talked last week about how God brought, as ironic as it seems, God brought his people to a place of deprivation in order to show them that he wanted to meet their every need. That, that they just needed to trust him. They just needed to trust him. Well, as verse 15 ended, we saw how, with this lesson having been made explicit, God now led his people from the place of deprivation into a place of abundance, a place named Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Um, One spring each for each of the 12 tribes and 70 palm trees, one for each of the leaders of Israel. I mean, what a giveaway. God is there. God has blessed this. God is at work in their lives. The Lord wants to meet our every need. We just have to trust and obey. Well, from that place of abundance... God leads them out again into a dry place, a place of hard ground, once again, a place of deprivation. And the supplies that they brought out from Egypt have finally run out. Um, Have the Israelites learnt the lesson from Mara? Uh, Will they demonstrate faith? No. Uh, Again, they grumble and complain. Again, they blame the leaders. Interestingly, the complaint gets more sophisticated this time, doesn't it? They introduce a revisionist history. And presumably, they actually believe it. That actually, things weren't so bad in Egypt. All the good old days. We sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Was that true? Well, actually, I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's true that they were well supplied with food, but the simple fact remains that the Egyptians treated them so brutally as slaves that they themselves had cried out to God from Egypt, begging God to save them. In the early chapters of Exodus, it is abundantly clear that their lives as slaves were bitter and difficult, that their living conditions were harsh, that they they themselves had groaned under this oppression, suffering and crying out to God for deliverance. Now, astonishingly, they have been delivered and somehow their memories are so flexible that they remember these as the happiest of times. I think this complaint is illustrative. It illustrates the fact that human beings really do have very bad memories. And when I say bad memories, I don't mean poor. I mean evil. We are spectacularly good at remembering good as bad and bad as good when we want to. And this propensity of ours is evil. It leads to grumbling. So their grumbling against Moses and Aaron now becomes an accusation of an evil motive rather than being leaders who actually have given up everything and suffered greatly as servants in order to serve God in their generation. No, Moses and Aaron, apparently their real intent, apparently, was to inflict a cruel death on the entire race. And ironically, that actually was Pharaoh's intent. Moses and Aaron, at great personal cost, saved them from it. 
In addition to this being a false and insulting accusation, it is also blasphemous. Moses and Aaron are prophets, people who represent God. And so as representatives, God's character and motives are also being insulted. In effect, what is being said here is Moses, Aaron and the Lord, they're all in on it together. Their actual intent right from the beginning was to kill us all. And we would have been, if that's the case, we would have been better off dying in Egypt. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Well, um, if you were with us last week, you might mention that this time there's no mention of praying. Last week, Moses prayed and the Lord answered. This time, there's no mention of Moses praying. Um, The fact that it doesn't mention Moses praying doesn't mean that he didn't. We don't know if he did or if he didn't. The fact that there's no mention of it means that our narrator is taking us straight to God's answer. And the narrator wants to emphasize, therefore, the proximity of God. He answers straight away. He's a part of this conversation. God is with them. He is right there. And he hears everything. He is indeed not only the God who hears every word that is spoken, but rather, indeed, he is the God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. He's there and he knows. Um, I can remember one important lesson that I learned um, from Bible college. uh, uh, The lesson is never talk about God as though he's not there. That's an important lesson at Bible college because at Bible college, actually, you're talking about God all day long. Don't forget he's present. Don't forget to pray what you're learning. Um, The very first theological conversation in the Bible where it so happened that the theologians present forgot that God was present, um, it was a conversation between a man and a snake and a woman and it ended badly. God speaks. He's there. He will provide. But he continues to insist that his people learn to do things his way. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? that you should grumble against us. Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. 
Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Well, um, in seven verses, we've heard the word grumbling six times. Uh, The people are being rebuked for grumbling, and they cannot now be in any doubt as to how offensive this behavior is to God. Again, just to be clear, what makes this grumbling totally unacceptable is that it was uttered in God's presence as though he wasn't there, about him, but not to him. Actually, it is okay to grumble to God. That's okay. In, a, in, in fact, actually, in addition to that, it's okay to, to whinge to God, to whine, sob, rant, rage, and to dummy spit to God. All of those things are completely acceptable. In fact, more acceptable than most of us would dare to hope or dream most of the time. And in fact, the Psalms teach us how to do this. I'm not sure if you noticed, but we've all had a thoroughly good whinge this morning already, and we called it Psalm 74. The Psalms teach us to do it. If it's in our hearts and in our minds, God can handle it. He already knows it's there anyway. We can put it in his hands, telling him in prayer. It's okay to complain to God. It's not okay to complain about God. Verse 13. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it is, what it was. And in fact, we don't know what it was either. Um, But it's called mana, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. I'd like to talk about the quail first. Um, As I'm sure many of you know, every year, millions and millions and millions of birds migrate backwards and forwards from uh, breeding grounds in Europe and Russia um, through to winter feeding grounds in Africa. And they have to pass through various bottlenecks, uh, such as Gibraltar, um, across that point between Libya and, and Italy, Uh, around uh, the Red Sea. They have to pass through bottlenecks where they come together in vast numbers. Uh, This is springtime. It's a time of migration. Um, And uh, after crossing such a body of water, such as the Red Sea, these vast flocks of birds can sometimes come to ground so tired that they can be easily caught by hand. And this phenomenon, then, of a vast flock of of birds suddenly appearing, it's actually not that unusual in the Middle East, uh, on, on the Arabic Peninsula. Um, And in fact, this is not the only time this kind of thing will happen. It may have happened several times, but it's recorded at least one other time. It happened at least twice, and the other time appears in Numbers chapter 11. And I suggest you do read that chapter, uh, Numbers chapter 11, Uh, perhaps not now, um, but at some time, because a lot of detail is given, and it's really interesting to compare the two episodes. Now, with respect to the mana... No one today actually knows exactly what this substance is, but its similarity to various things that are known make it quite likely that we're dealing with a natural phenomenon. Um, In desert regions across North Africa and the Middle East, there are actually various insects, 
uh, plants and even fungi that produce carbohydrate-rich secretions. And many of these secretions do indeed appear overnight. They do indeed melt in strong sunlight, and they degrade very quickly. And many of these secretions form frost-like coverings over either the ground or over plants, and they, these secretions can be gathered, and they are enjoyed as a delicacy in some places. Uh, later on in this chapter, uh, mana is going to be identified as pale in color and tasting like wafers with honey when eaten raw. In Numbers chapter 11, mana is described as looking like resin. And it's something that could be ground in a hand mill or crushed with a mortar. And when it was cooked, um, Numbers 11 tells us, it tasted like something made with olive oil. Well, as with many of the miracles in the Bible, including the ten plagues against Pharaoh and also the parting of the Red Sea, there are both natural as well as what we might call supernatural elements to what happens. I I just point this out because our contemporary mindset inclines us to see natural explanations and supernatural explanations as somehow competing. But this isn't the way the Bible sees it. This isn't the way the Bible sees things. The, The God of the Bible is the creator and Lord of nature. And therefore, natural explanations do not in any way compete with or compromise or undermine so-called supernatural explanations. So, in the same way, the Bible is going to regard, it does regard the mana as both something natural and supernatural at the same time. Um, vast flocks of edible migratory birds do crash down in the desert. That's a natural phenomenon. But the Lord's sovereignty over nature as its creator is such that it is evident that this happens upon his word. It seems like a random thing, but he knows exactly when it's going to happen, and it's going to happen when he says it's going to happen, and it does. Um, This is both a miracle of provision as well as a miracle of coincidence. And the whole point of miracles, we remember, is to learn stuff about God. So what are we learning about God from this? Well, we're learning, actually, that God is a God of order. And random stuff seems to happen, and yet God orders the lives of those who belong to him, of those who trust him. We look at life, and it seems random and chaotic, and chance things happen, but actually, God is a God of order, and he orders the lives of those who trust him and belong to him, even in a disordered world. With the mana, too, we are dealing with something that almost certainly has a natural explanation, and yet, equally, without any contradiction required, this is provision from heaven. And, as we shall see, God is sovereignly in charge, completely in charge, of its appearance and its disappearance. So let's read on, continuing again from verse 15. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. 
And when they measured it out by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Well, the point of miracles is to teach us about God. So what are we learning about God? Yet again, we are learning that God wants to meet our every need and can meet our every need. Once again, God has brought his people to a place of deprivation in order, as ironic as it seems, to show them that he can and will meet their every need. They just have to try, trust him. They're not going to die. Um, we also recognize, don't we, as Christians, that when it comes to miracles, it it is the pleasure of the Father to reveal the Son and the pleasure of the Son to reveal the Father. So how does this miracle reveal Jesus? Well, one of the things you might have noticed about this manna is that if you kept it too long, it went off and it stank. Um, well, one day, many years later, after miraculously feeding 5,000 families from two small fish and five barley loaves, in a place of deprivation, which yet, interestingly, they all went home full, um, Jesus taught the people, do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Clearly then, this, this mana stuff is its intended. Its use-by date is, its best-before-date is so limited, it's clearly intended to point to something else. Sure, it came down from heaven, but it points to something else, doesn't it? Something that doesn't go off. Jesus continued, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who gives you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, the people said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Guess what the Jewish leadership did when they heard Jesus say that? They grumbled. Old habits die hard, don't they? But Jesus answered, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The point of the manna is to point to Jesus. Jesus is the true bread. And you can eat Jesus, uh, being nourished in every conceivable way when you live depending upon him, trusting in him to meet your every need. Jesus is the true manna. Verse 21, each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed and when the sun grew hot it melted away. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. Moses said to them, 
This is what the Lord's commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Well, this here in verse 23, this is the very first mention of Sabbath in the Bible. Um, These people haven't yet received the Ten Commandments. That's going to happen in a month or two when they get to Mount Sinai. So they haven't yet heard the commandment, the fourth commandment, um, which for us is in Exodus 20, which says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. But, But today, in Exodus 16, this is a brand new idea. For the Israelites, they didn't do this in Egypt. They weren't given a day off in Egypt. They were slaves. They had no value apart from the value of the work they did. Um, The word itself, Sabbath, simply means rest day. And it's uh, derived from the Hebrew verb uh, um, Shavath, which means to rest or cease, but it means in particular to rest or cease from exertion. Now, the Sabbath principle is a very, very powerful idea. It's going to change the world. It changes people's worldview. And I love it. And I love to preach on Sabbath keeping from time to time, but I don't have time today. And some of you have heard it anyway many times. (laughs) But today, what I want to point out is that with the exception... Uh, just, we just need to think today about the fact that with the exception of, of rules about Passover, Passover being a holiday, this is the first commandment that the Hebrews have received from God. This is the first instruction. This is the first thing. And can you see, can you understand with me this morning that the commands of God are not burdensome? If you look at it, we'll see that this command will not add a burden to their shoulders. Actually, it takes a burden off. They get a day off. Every seven days, they get a day off where they don't have to go out and collect food. That's not burdensome. That's the opposite of burdensome. Um, And if you think about them all, all of God's commands are like this. We think about commands as limiting our freedom and in the instinct of the flesh we think oh no god's limiting my freedom but it's no he's when we obey his commands when we trust and obey he is freeing us freeing us from harming ourselves when when we try to live as our own masters it's when when we try to take our destiny into our own hands it's then actually that we become slaves We become slaves to ourselves, slaves to the idea that we think is true. And we become slaves under a burden that sooner or later becomes intolerable. Jesus said, 
Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I will give you rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. In him, we rest from trying to save ourselves. Even eternal life, even eternal life is ours. We, just as long, we just, we just got to trust him and not ourselves. The, the Sabbath command, the first one given, it's actually, it's all about Jesus. Verse 28, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Well, um, the lesson is repeated because it needs to be repeated. God expects to be obeyed. His commands are not burdensome, just the reverse. His commands lift the burden. As with the story from last week, here again we see God's extraordinary patience. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Um, This chapter is full of disobedience. They refuse to trust. They insult their leaders. They blaspheme. They fail to pray. They don't do what they ought to do. And they do what they ought not do. And yet, all of this is overlooked. There's no discipline. God is extremely patient with his children, although he will limit his patience from time to time for our own good. Um, Let's pray. Um, I've got a prayer I've prepared earlier. If you'd like to, you can pray this too in your heart. Uh, Dear Jesus, please grant me salvation from a three-second memory. Um, When things come that scare me or disturb me, please help me to remember that you're present, that you love me, that I can trust you, uh, and that um, I can do things your way. Please help me to remember In times of difficulty, need, or want, please help me to remember that you want to meet my every need, and you will do so, your way, in your timing, to the glory of the Father. Um, Jesus, please help me to remember not to grumble about you, but rather to pour out my complaint to you in prayer. Um, Lord Jesus, life tests me frequently, and I'm full of anxiety and apprehension. But you, who passed the test, you have the power to save so that I, your servant, can cease from the exertion of trying to save myself. I pray, Lord Jesus, all of these things to the glory of our Father and in your name. Amen.